Welcome to the West Side Audio Message Podcast. We hope you enjoyed today's message. And if you're looking for more ways to connect with West Side Assembly of God, feel free to check us out at www.westsideag.org. You'll find all the information about our service times, upcoming events, and opportunities for you to plug in and get connected with West Side Assembly of God. Additionally, you'll find a complete online archive of all of the previous and current messages absolutely free of charge. We hope you are encouraged by this week's message, and thanks again for downloading the West Side Audio Message Podcast. Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the Skull, they crucified him there along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, he saved others. Let him save himself, as if he is God's Messiah, the chosen one. The soldiers also came up and mocked him, and they offered him wine vinegar and said, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was written, a written notice above him which read, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God? Since you are under the same sentence, we're punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, truly, I tell you today, you will be with me in paradise. Now, Jesus has been tried before Pilate, sentenced uh, to be executed by crucifixion. And having been flogged with a whip, which defies description today, he is then required to carry his cross approximately one half mile to the hill known as Golgotha. We often call that Calvary. But the word Golgotha, meaning the place of the skull, but the Latin translation of that, Calvaria, is from which we get the word Calvary. They're both the same place. Jesus was incapable of carrying that cross because of his weakened condition, the pain that was inflicted upon him by the flogging, the heavy loss of blood and his weakened state. He could not carry it all the way, and uh, Simon was conscripted to help carry that cross that half-mile to the hill. Arriving on top of the hill, there were three men sentenced to death that day. They were all fastened to a cross, and the cross lifted up and set in place where these three men would suffer unspeakable agony. We don't know the details of the crucifixion of the other men, but it is often suggested that perhaps they were not nailed to the cross, they were tied to the cross, just being suspended there would be bad enough. But they appeared to be more in a mood of interaction than Jesus was. He was definitely in a more weakened and deteriorated state. He was also placed in the middle, which some read that as being that he was the one of prominent focus on this day of the execution of three people. In other words, they viewed him as the most deserving of this death, though you and I know, and the testimony of one man is he's innocent. So the one man who did not really belong there for his own wrongdoings was placed in the place of prominence as being the worst of the worst. Customarily, there would be a crowd together and and watch this process of crucifixion. 
Some would be delighting in the fact that this particular criminal being crucified at whatever time it would be had done them so much harm and was now getting the just desserts. One of the three men who was there that day claimed to be the Jewish Messiah, be Jesus Christ. This made it a very unique experience. So the crowd swelled beyond the normal rubberneckers and those just looking to go out and have a family outing by watching a crucifixion. But this day, this brought a prominence to this particular execution. And there, the, the very fact that he claimed to be the Messiah had divided the Jewish people significantly between those who were angered by this proclamation and could not wait to see him breathe his last and those who had been touched by his ministry and were followers and believers. So both the believers and the skeptics were there that day. It was like a divided congregation. On Christ's appearance here on earth, having brought such division and passion to both sides, you can see how they were, at least the enemies of Christ, motivated to criticize him and hurl accusations at him. I can't hardly imagine a person being in that kind of state and at that point continuing to rail against them. I've got too much compassion in my heart when a person's down, even if they're worst, my worst enemy, I feel sorry for them. There was no compassion in these people whatsoever. So a significant representation from both groups had gathered there that day. And the one group smugly satisfied that they are now finally ridding their camp of this rabble rouser. And the other, the believers who were devastated that the man who had healed them. And the man who had raised their dead back to life. The man who had opened their blinded eyes and their deaf ears. And the man who had spoken love and forgiveness to them. And never a man spake like this man. That this man who forgave the sinners should suffer a sinner's death. We don't know a whole lot about the other two men who were there and their exact crimes. They were criminals. They're sometimes called malefactor. One a thief, one a malefactor, but they were criminals. But the, there is uh, some suggestion and some indication that these men, being Jews, they were called thieves merely because they were resistant to the Roman authorities. And being resistant to the authority of Rome over them and the, what they considered the unfair taxation, that they took every opportunity to steal their taxes back. That's treason against the Roman Empire. And the penalty for treason is death. The penalty for thievery was not death in the Roman Empire. So there was something else going on besides just a common chicken thief. These people had offended the Roman authorities to some degree where they figured they demanded to be crucified. So there they were. Here hangs the three men, the two thieves and Christ in the center. Now, very quickly, I'm not going to spend much time on this point, but I think it's a real good opportunity today, Easter Sunday. If there's anybody in this congregation today that you struggle with the validity of this story, if you're being influenced by your friends, your family, and the new wave of uh, agnostics and atheists today, that is, this is probably the greatest manifestation of skepticism in the United States of America we have ever seen. 
There's a generation coming up that's never been to church, never studied the Bible, and do not believe these. And they've been taught since they were little that this is a bunch of fairy tales. So the age of skepticism is gaining ground. And in case you have anybody that is telling you that they are disgusted with this whole mess and don't understand you being here today because it's mythology anyway, and they don't even believe in the literal existence of Jesus, please let me to, allow me to give you a little tool today to take with you, if you don't mind. 700 years before Jesus was crucified, uh, there were many prophets during that time that had prophesied of the coming of Jesus, but there was a man called Isaiah. And he prophesied many prophecies about Jesus coming and about his crucifixion. And in the 53rd chapter, there's one thing he said, he was numbered among the transgressors, which the fulfillment of that was he was there among two thieves and three were crucified. That that's what Isaiah saw through the eye of God. He would be numbered among the transgressors. Now that's fascinating. 700 years before that God told this man that's what the Messiah would be. Who would have thought? the Messiah would be numbered among the transgressors. Nor did we even really know that Isaiah understood what that meant when he prophesied it. Just to prophesy it doesn't mean he knew how that would be fulfilled. But there were uh, over 300 prophecies of Jesus coming among all of the prophets of the Old Testament that Jesus literally fulfilled. And, the, and as they calculate the statistics, uh, the, the probabilities on him coming and fulfilling those, we're going to reduce that number. Remember the, the number 300. You can take notes for yourself. Over 300 prophecies concerning Jesus specifically fulfilled in him. What are the odds? I'm glad you asked. Let's take 48 of them. Let's reduce it to 48. I'm not going to even deal with 300. We can't get our brain around that. I don't think we'll get our brain around this. Let's take a little cube, like a building block uh, that kids play with. One inch by one inch, okay? And... Within this cube, we're going to recognize there are electrons flying around in there. How many electrons are there? Does anybody know today? I didn't think you did. Well, I'll tell you how many they were. One to the 157th power. And in order to illustrate that and get your brain around this, if you were to start counting those electrons and you were to count more than four per second, now that's a pretty fast pace to count at, four per second, it would take you 19,000 years times 19,000 years, times 19,000 years to count all those electrons. Now we're going to take all those electrons that you have spent 19,000 times 19,000 times 19,000 years counting, and we're going to scramble them. Mark one electron, just one. And we're going to scramble them, and we're going to ask a man to come in and cover his eyes and reach down and with one effort pull out the marked electron. That's the chance that any man had a fulfilling only 48 of those prophecies. Jesus fulfilled over 300 of them. Don't tell me it's a myth. It's beyond being accidental. This is the truth. Now, I didn't come here today to do a full apologetics class. I just wanted to give you something so we can get the validity of this story fastened down. Take that with you. When somebody else starts to go on about what a a bunch of fairy tales that says, you don't have to argue with them, but you'll be solid in knowing, I've already learned, this is fact. This is true. Now, I want to proceed on to the story of these three men hanging on these crosses. And if we study the situation, they say something to us. There is a valuable message 
in the situation of each person hanging on the cross. I want to go to Matthew in chapter 27 because Matthew brings out a little more clearly some of the railing and the accusations that taking a place against Jesus. He says in the 27th chapter, the 38th verse, two rebels, here they're called rebels, and rightfully if they were uh, going against the Roman uh, Empire, then certainly that, that would have described their crime. Two rebels were crucified with him, one on the right and one on his left. Now, the wicked one was on his left, and the one who repented was on his right. And you ask me how I know that, because I've watched every movie that's ever been made. And the good man's always on the right. I know that. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are the Son of God. In the same way the chief priests and the teachers of the law and the elders mocked him, he saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. Now, you didn't get that in Luke's passage, so Matthew adds a little bit to this taunting that's going on. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the son of God. In the same way, the rebels who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. Luke didn't tell us that. Luke told us that one heaped insults on him and the other one defended Jesus. But Matthew tells us that both of them were doing that for a while. Now you have to remember, they were hanging on these crosses for six hours. They could have both started out railing against Christ, but one man had a change of heart before he died. So you've got that in your mind of how this transpired. The first cross... The bad man, the one on the left. His problem, and I see this as a message of uh, no greater tragedy. And he's, he's a man of, what's your notes say? He's a man of scorn. Do you see that? He's a man of scorn. The greatest tragedy I can think of is for somebody to be in that close proximity with Jesus and not to perceive who he is or what he was actually doing for him at that time. Jesus was dying for the man who was railing against him. The greatest tragedy has to be that this man persistently passed into eternity resisting the influence of Jesus Christ in his life. What greater tragedy can there be than to have had the opportunity and to turn it down because of prejudices, because of preconceived ideas? Why is it people don't believe in God? Sometimes it's ignorance that they don't believe in God. But most of the time, the reason people don't believe in God is because to acknowledge there's a God is to understand that He is going to intersect your life. And people don't want God intersecting their life. So therefore, the convenient thing is, rather than just to say to God, get out of my life, I don't want you bothering with me, they just say, I don't believe in him, as though that fixes everything. That doesn't fix anything. As a matter of fact, some of the, 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 
the great atheistic, agnostic at the least, or atheistic at the worst philosophers that ever existed have written things about why they are atheists or why they are agnostics, doubting the existence of God or fully declaring there is no God. And some of the things they say are like this. Because if we believe there is a God, we know we're accountable to Him. We want to be free to do whatever we want to do. We don't want to be bound by some moral lawgiver or His moral laws. So it's convenient for us to say there is no God. And at least that's an honest admission of why they do not believe there is a God. But this man, for whatever reason, was refusing to accept Jesus Christ as being the true Messiah. And instead of reaching out to him or allowing the love of Christ to touch and change his life, he was insulting him there on the cross. The greatest tragedy, this man of scorn, the first thing he did is defined God in his own terms. If you are the Messiah, save yourself and save us. So this man has it fixed in his mind that if you are God, this is what you would automatically do. How many of you know people who have said that? If there really was a God, he would do this. They have this preconceived idea. Therefore, because God does not live up to their standards and their concept, they conclude there is no God. Because if there was a God, there wouldn't be any injustice in the world. That's a generic statement, but that's, that kind of summarizes their attitude. If there was a God, there wouldn't be mad dictators ruthlessly slaughtering innocent people. If there was a God, children wouldn't be starving in third world countries. People wouldn't be born with severe physical and mental disadvantages. Natural disasters that wipe out thousands of people would not happen if there was a God. Because their idea of God is he would never allow anything bad to happen. He would just be up there as a heavenly bodyguard protecting and making everything equal for everybody. Everybody's happy. Everybody's on the same plane. That's their concept of God. They're defining God in the wrong terms. They try to argue away God by insisting this world would be so much better place if there truly was a God because their idea of God is he's going to oversee. He's going to superintend. He's never going to allow unhappiness or any difficulty or any injustice or any trauma to ever come upon humanity. This big monitor in the sky that will never let people fight and bicker and harm one another that he would look over the cosmos and build a better world of nature around us without tornadoes and earthquakes and tsunamis. And because we don't live in a world like that, there is no God. They did not envision a God who would leave his glorious estate, clothe himself in the weakness of humanity, walk among men, surrender his life to the Roman cross, die between two thieves. This just didn't look like God to them. He didn't fit the profile. And that's why people continue to miss him, though he's right there. They're looking for a God of their own imagination, for a God that fits their personal opinion and who and what they want God to be, instead of simply accepting God and his personal revelation of himself to us. The second thing this man did is he had no fear of God. And finally... The other thief came to the understanding that hanging there and railing accusations against this man with a few hours left to live was probably not the smartest thing to do. And he who was once hurling accusations 
against him, now backs off, reconsiders, and becomes the defender of Christ. As he hollers out at the other thief and says, don't you even have any fear of God? Now where did this man come to this, this transition, this transformation in his life, where once he was slandering him, but now he's decided, this might be God. Maybe I had better ease up. And maybe this other man had better knock it off too. We're not in very good position here to be mouthing God. So he becomes the defender of Christ. He says, don't you fear God? And the answer is not in the Bible. But the answer is no. He doesn't fear God. He didn't fear Christ because he did not believe Christ to be God incarnate. He did not fear God because he was, a, he was dying a criminal's death and was not making any effort at this time to find peace with God. Found no reason to. And third, he was bitter to the complete end. That's the reason I call this the great tragedy. Christopher Hitchens, who has been a very popular, well-known uh, leader of the atheistic movement today, died a couple of years ago. But if you ever heard him speak, if you ever heard him debate, you would know that he had developed quite a loyal following among his atheistic friends. And he was their, their celebrated front man. And he, he regularly participated in debates with representatives of Christianity. And his style was hypercritical, abrasive, insulting, and demeaning. And if he couldn't beat you with an argument, he would beat you up with personal attacks and ridicule. And here's just one example. Let me quote. The Bible may indeed does contain a warrant for trafficking in humans. This is his accusation against the Bible. For ethnic cleansing, for slavery, for bride price, for indiscriminate massacre. But we are not bound by any of it, the Bible, because it was put together by crude, uncultured human mammals. And that's what he thinks of the Bible. That's a little bit of his style. You know, when Christopher Hitches was dying, he had a slow... Uh, developing cancer that took his life he had two fears one fear was that the christians would who were praying for him that somehow hitchens would beat this cancer and the christians would say we prayed for you and god healed you he didn't want that the second fear he had is he would not beat the cancer he would die but in his dying hours he would begin to call out to god and he gave a warning. He said to his atheistic friends, as they said, you know, do you think maybe when you come close to death that you'll have a change of mind? He said, I will not. I will not. Mark it, I will not. And if I come to the end of my life and I start calling out to God, I want to make it on record today. I'm only doing that because I have become delusionary. And he says, don't believe it. Because I'm telling you today, I'm not changing my mind. Nobody, he didn't want anybody around when he died because he didn't want them to see what he might do in his dying hours. And he didn't want them to misrepresent it as a deathbed acknowledgement of Jesus. He was bitter to the end. He was not only prepared to die, he was making plans to reject God with his dying breath if he stayed in possession of his mental faculties. He was making plans to deny God to the end, period. Bitter to the end. Such a sad story of a man who makes plans to purposely reject God until his dying breath. I've met a lot of people that don't have time for God now, but in the back of their mind, they're thinking, one of these days, 
when I have lived my life to its fullest and I've done everything I want to do and there are no more joys for me to pursue and I want to settle down, I've got nothing left in my life, I will probably come around and and get right with God. He gets all the leftovers after you've burnt yourself up. But you're a notch better than this guy who has decided when it's all burnt up and it's all over, God still is not going to get anything from me because there is no God. So as sorry as that might be to think that one of these days I'm going to get it right, at least, if that's you, at least you're not setting your heart totally against God. Now we'll talk about the others sometimes to maybe get you sped up in the process. But there's nothing more tragic than rejecting God with your dying breath. How hard can a man or a woman make the heart to reject the invitation of the Holy Spirit. And how many times can we say no to God before our heart turns to stone? The story of the first thief is the saddest story ever told. The misery of rejecting Christ. The misery of a hardened heart. The misery of being blinded by their own bitterness. But you're a free moral agent. And you are free to choose. The second thief... The second cross, what does it speak to us? I suggest to you, it speaks to us of no greater grace. Or a man that will always be known as a man of surrender. He finally gave it up. Sometimes people fight really hard before they give it up for God. Sometimes it comes down to a brutal wrestling match with the Holy Spirit before you finally give it up to God. But this man finally gave it up, even in his dying hours, taking a stab at trying to reject Christ to the very end. It just didn't feel right to him. And honesty overcame him as he came closer and closer to the very end of his life and had this change of heart where he went from accusing and and, uh, insulting Jesus Christ to finally something happened. And this is the miracle of the power of the Holy Spirit that can take a heart that is so dead set against God in one minute and the very next minute by the power of the Holy Spirit they are surrendering to Jesus. We have seen the miracle of salvation come to people who said I'm only going to church to fight with the Holy Spirit tonight. I'm not planning on doing anything and surrendering to God. Next thing you know we're singing I surrender all and they're hitting the altar surrendering it all to God. They didn't plan it but they didn't count on the power of the Holy Spirit to take over a man's heart and help him to see his own failures, his own frustrations and finally say I cannot live life like this anymore I must come to God and find forgiveness for all of my failures. That's the power of the Holy Spirit. So this man gets to the point in his life where he quits insulting Defends Jesus against the insults of the other men, uh, of the other uh, thief, the malefactor. And he says this as he turns to Jesus with his repentant heart. He says, remember me when you enter into your kingdom. That doesn't sound anything like our salvation sinner's prayers, does it? I've led you in sinner's prayers many times in this church. And probably will today. 
But never once in all of my ministry have I said, everybody bow your heads and repeat after me. Remember me when you enter into your kingdom. Amen. Maybe we complicate it too much. Because it was enough. Because it's not the formula of a prayer that gets it done. If your heart's not right, you can say the right formula and it still hasn't done you any good. But it was the condition of the man's heart that didn't know what to say and had never been told how to pray the kind of prayer we pray. All he knew was his heart was crying out to have Jesus fill this hurt and this emptiness that now flooded him. And the only thing he could think of is just remember me. He didn't even say, take me with you. He just said, when you get over there, and I'm going wherever people like me go, if you'll just think about me, that's all I'm asking. You know, it was a very humble request. But it was enough for Jesus to more than meet him halfway. And God will more than meet you halfway. You don't have to take two steps before God takes two steps. You don't have to take a mile, go a mile before God will come a mile and meet you. If you will take one step towards Him, God will run a hundred miles to meet you before you take the next step. Lord, when you enter into your kingdom, remember me. And Jesus said, oh, I could do better than that. He said, this day you will be with me in paradise. That is the miracle of salvation. Here's the question that we ask. And it had to be the question the man on the cross was asking. Can I be forgiven? He had to be wrestling with this. Was he even worthy to ask anything more than just think about me when you get over there? Think about me where I'm burning or where I'm suffering. Whatever's going to, just think about me. Was he even worthy to ask for that? The question that was the barrier for him is, can I be forgiven? I'm a thief. He had already admitted to the other guy, we deserve this. We're getting our just reward. We deserve this. And nothing better. Can I be forgiven? And people ask that question. Can you be forgiven? We've invented more ways to sin and offend God today with our technology and our speed and shrinking the world to the size of our computer than we have ever had in the history of mankind. And people are getting jaded. They've done things they never dreamed in a thousand years. Mankind would come to do and practice and be proud of every day that they do it. And men and women are sinning without remorse. They are stealing. They are murdering. They are raping. They are pumping their bodies full of garbage. And they wake up and they have no remorse. They're not before God begging His forgiveness for that night that they were out on the town. They don't care anymore. Their spirits are getting so hardened. But should they ever consider the possibility of getting right with God, one of these things is, but can He forgive me? No matter how heinous the things that people have done, there's something there that bothers them. There is the man who in his past life has not behaved appropriately towards other people. And that one thing incident stands out in his mind. He says, that's been so bad. Can I ever be forgiven for what I've done? 
We think in our culture, our society, what are those things that marks people for life for which we cannot forgive them? When you think of when they have abused a child, can we ever forgive that person? When they've murdered your loved one, can you ever forgive that person? Or whatever you have done in your life, and you stand there and you think in, in the presence of God, how can He ever forgive me? Or you've racked up the years living without Him in your life and you have no use for Him. Then suddenly one day you want to come and get saved. And the old enemy sits on your shoulder and says, He'll never forgive you. You've wasted your entire life. Who do you think you are? You cannot be forgiven. Can we be forgiven? Is there forgiveness for me? Our sins and mistakes and failures haunt us. We've offended loved ones and we long for forgiveness. How many of you have a loved one? You don't have to raise your hand. Just think about it. How many of you have a loved one? A child, a daughter, a husband, a wife, a brother, a sister. But you've had a falling out with them. And you were the cause. You offended them. And you're wondering, can I ever be forgiven? Will they ever accept me back? You have offended the family. And you've been ostracized. And you wonder, can I come home? Like the prodigal who ran away and took all his inheritance and went and spent it and had nothing left and said, I've got nothing to do but go back home. Can my father forgive me? And we're haunted by the possibilities. Maybe not. Maybe we've gone too far. And this thief had to struggle with this. For a man who has cheated on his spouse. For the woman who has cheated on her husband. If you desire to restore that relationship, you're going to struggle with, can they truly forgive me? Will it ever be back to what it was? Is there forgiveness? Or is this totally and permanently broken? Because we want relationships restored. So this thief hanging on the side of Jesus realizes his relationship with God has been broken. Can I be forgiven? Dying a thief's death? No chance to go out and do something good with my life? No chance to apologize to those I have hurt? Hanging here on a cross with but minutes left to live? Can God forgive me? And the other man says he saved others. Let him save himself. But can he save me? The Bible says they shook their heads at him. It's a cultural practice of indicating their utter disgust with him. The Roman soldiers mocked him. They offered him sour vinegar to drink. And it was a cruel practical joke to lift something to his mouth that he, thirsting so terribly, would think at last just a drop of water. Only to put it to his mouth and realized it was sour vinegar and spit it out. And the Roman soldiers laughed to see the response they got from that cruel joke they played on him. They mocked him as saying he's the king of the Jews. They put the sign over his head. And he opened not his mouth to defend himself. Peter says when he was reviled, he reviled not again. But when he did open his mouth and he did speak, he said, Father, forgive him. You can be forgiven. And you don't have to carry that burden the rest of your life. 
For when Jesus hung on that cross to the people who cruelly mistreated him, and the only thing he opened his mouth to say, he didn't argue with them, he didn't say, look how I did so many good things for you, and you treat me like this, and I'm innocent of all charges. All he said was, Father, forgive him. I'm here to tell you the good news is, you can be forgiven no matter what you've done. And here's some more good news. If you can hear me today, it's not too late. If you're dead, you probably cannot hear me. You're probably not here. But if you can hear me, it's not too late. You haven't gone too far. You haven't done anything that stains you so deep that the blood of Jesus Christ cannot cleanse you from all unrighteousness. As long as you have breath, breath, it's not too late for a thief to hang on the cross with minutes left to say, just remember me when you enter into paradise is the greatest news we've ever heard. It's never too late as long as you have the power to call on Jesus. I don't know what to say. Well, just try the thief. And his statement, it'll work. I guarantee it didn't make any difference. What you say, if you just say, oh Lord, it'll work. If you just scream out, help, it'll work. Because God knows your heart. And he's not looking for you to get the formula right before he answers you. But the man in the middle. And we got, we got the bitter man on the left. We got the seeker on the right that surrendered. And the man on the left tells us it's a tragedy to turn your back on God to your dying breath. And the man on the right tells us there's still time. And God's grace is sufficient. But the man in the middle has a message. And the message of the cross, I could, give it a, I could give it so many different things and so many different summaries, but is there anything better than there is no greater love than what the man in the middle demonstrated? This love, it was Jesus himself that shared these words with his disciples when he said, greater love has no one than this, and they will lay down their life for one's friend, John chapter 15. And then Paul wrote these words to the Christians at Rome, and he even went farther than that. He said, once in a while, rarely, will anyone die for a righteous person. It just doesn't happen that often. We value our life too much, even for a good person to lay our life down in their stead. We say, everybody has to die their own death. I feel sorry for him, but that's his problem. So Paul says, we don't hear that very much. He said, though for a good person someone might, possibly dare to die he admits it could happen but here's what paul says but god demonstrates his own love for us in this that while we were still sinners he died for us who's ever heard of that would you die for your enemy i'd start off on the easy one would you go and die for your friend and your friend is racked with cancer, and you have the power to take that cancer on yourself and say, you know what, I'll let you get up and finish living your life. I'm going to take the cancer and die in your place. Would you do that? Well, some of you here, you think maybe you would be big enough to do that. I think there's a lot of us that would say, 
I'm sorry, friend, I can't do anything for you. But we go from that to the extreme of the man who has hurt you or the woman who has hurt you more than you've ever been hurt in your life. And you, if you despise them and you're trying to avoid hatred because you know what hatred and bitterness does, but you have no use for these people whatsoever and they are dying and you, you hear about it and do you think you sit down there in your living room and you think about them dying and you say, I think I'll go and take their death upon myself and let them go free. I doubt you are going to do that. But that is exactly what Jesus did when we were dying. We were sinners. We were enemies of God. We deserved nothing. And he came to his enemies. And he said, you know what? I don't want you to die. I will take the death and the penalty of sin upon myself. And you can live. I will die that you can live. There is no greater demonstration of love man has ever known in this world than Jesus would die for man. greater than the love of a mother for her baby and how tender and precious that is but then you see how frail and faulty and inconsistent that is you hear about some young mother that got pregnant goes out partying starts having labor pains goes in the back room has the baby throws it in the dumpster and goes and finish partying the rest of the night something about a mother's love is just not as as consistent as we expect it to be. Sometimes there's good mother's love and sometimes there is no mother's love. It's better than the love of a young man for that beautiful young lady that won your heart that you showered her with compliments and gifts and affection until you finally snagged her and then you start beating her up and bossing her around and hitting her with your fists and bullying her because that love a young man has for a young lady is just not certain it can change in a moment, can it? Or that love of a brother for a sister that one minute you're going to go and beat up the neighborhood bully for beating up your sister, for beating up your brother. You're going to defend them to the death until they cross you and then you're beating them up. And so much for sibling love. But his love never fails. He doesn't turn. He doesn't change. He doesn't love you today and hate you tomorrow. No greater love. We don't know any love. In all this world, like the love of Jesus, for it never fails. The next word I have for Jesus is hope. Because I have to end the Easter sermon on the note of hope. You see, all of this is only possible when Jesus said, This day you will be with me in paradise. It's only possible if he wasn't planning on staying dead. If there was something after this life, which people wonder about. They've never crossed over. They've never seen it. What's out there? But it's only possible if there really is something after this life. This day, you'll be with me in paradise. He wasn't planning on staying dead either. This is not a story about a person who once lived on earth, but now he's gone. He's alive. He was dead, but he's alive. He conquered death. He beat death at its own game. He gave death three days to do whatever it was going to do, but death could not hold him. And when people say, because they want to be open-minded, they want to be politically correct, and they say, it doesn't make any difference what religion you have as long as you have a religion and you are devoted to it. 
It doesn't make any difference. Christianity's fine for you, but it's not for everybody. But as long as the Buddhist has a religion, that's good for the Buddhist. As long as the Hindu has a religion, that's good for the Hindu. As long as the Muslims have Islam, that's good for them. Everybody just needs their own. Just be true to your own religion. Let me tell you why that statement is wrong in so many ways. And it's very simple. It does not take a physicist to be able to figure this out. Buddha's dead. Muhammad died. He's not around anymore. He's a matter of history. And every Hindu, they keep dying. They can't quit dying. They die and come back and die again and come back and get and die again. They can't quit dying. Of all of these, and everybody says they're all okay, every man to each his own, you have to remember there's only one that went to the grave and knocked the rock out of the way and came walking out. I'm not staying here. He is alive. And so that leaves the question in people's mind, then pastor, isn't that a little bit arrogant and exclusive to say only Christians are going to heaven? Buddhists can't find their way. Hindus can't find their way. I want to tell you, Jesus died for all. And the book of Romans tells us God is not going to judge them by did they confess Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. He's going to judge them based on the light that they have received. And they may not understand Jesus, but if they understand God in any way, shape, or form, and they reach out trying to find this God they've never been introduced to, when they stand before Him and finally meet Him face to face, the judge of the earth is going to do right. Don't have to worry about that. That's one reason why Oprah Winfrey rejected Christianity, because she says, I can't believe in a God that would send people to hell just because they had not heard about Jesus Christ. If somebody had only sat down with Oprah and said, you got the wrong end of this thing. You don't understand the God we're serving. He's a God of mercy. He's a God of justice. Is everybody going to be saved? No, because not everybody cares about trying to find Him. And not everybody who doesn't know about Jesus Christ cares about trying to do what is right. You know we got it right here in the United States. They don't want God. But for those who are searching for Him, whatever it takes for them to find what little bit about God they know, God's going to sit down and say, I spoke these truths to your heart. You knew the basics of right and wrong. And if you tried to do the best you knew how to do with what little bit of light you received, I'm going to give you a passing grade. Now that doesn't sound fair to a lot of people. But I think it sounds more than fair to the people who never got the missionary to come to their country. Judged by the light they received. That's my God. He's a God of great love. Willing that none should perish. For you see, the reason I bring this is because there would be no resurrection if there weren't a death first. Obvious. And there would be no meaning to the crucifixion if there wasn't a resurrection. It would have just been a story. Three men died on a hill. Two were thieves and this other guy thought he was the Messiah. And soon forgotten by the world. Hospitals would not have been built in his name. The church would not have been built in his name. The Christian church would not comprise fully one-third of the entire world's population, the biggest religion in the world. It wouldn't have happened. You don't happen with somebody who's a fraud if he had not risen from the dead. We wouldn't be gathered here today. But it's because there was a resurrection. The crucifixion had significance. Otherwise, it would have been a footnote in history. The church never would have been established in Christianity just would not exist. But he's risen. 
And we rejoice and celebrate that today. He's risen. Would you bow your heads?